After the Affair podcast with me, Luke Shillings, is here to help you process, decide, and move forward on purpose following infidelity. Together, we'll explore what's required to rebuild trust not only in yourself, but also with others. Whether you stay or leave, I can help. And no matter what your story, there will be something here for you. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the After the Affair podcast with myself, Luke Shillings. You're listening to episode number 57. In this episode of the After the Affair, I speak with Yasmin Majid, a resilient woman who has navigated a range of challenges, including a troubled marriage and discovering an affair. Yasmin grew up in a multicultural household, blending her Kashmiri heritage with British culture a background that influenced many of her life choices. In this episode, she discusses the cultural pressures that led to a hasty marriage and subsequent hardships. Yasmin also opens up about her experiences with abuse, shedding light on the different forms that it can take and the importance of coaching and therapy in her healing process. She highlights the importance of intentional work, reframing setbacks as growth opportunities and the crucial role of relationships in shaping her self-worth. Yasmin's story is one of resilience, self-discovery and empowerment, built on a foundation of self-love and authentic connections. So let's get straight into this week's conversation with Yasmin Majid. Hello Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us today on the After the Affair podcast. I always like to try and allow my guests to offer a little introduction. So today is going to be no different. So would you be kind enough to share with the listeners a brief summary of who you are and what has got you to here? Hi, Luke. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, I'm Yasmin. Uh, I'm 55 years old. I am a coach. Uh, I say coach because I coach in many different modalities. Because I almost do a bespoke program for my clients once I I get to know them. Uh, And I cover things like nutrition, positive intelligence, lots of self-care, and kind of look at things from a physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual perspective, and kind of do a package for each individual. So catering for the uniqueness of us all, because we are all unique, and we all are on our own unique journeys. We just sometimes need a little bit of guidance and somebody to hold your hand. And that's, you know, something that I've benefited from. And that's what led me into a coaching profession after having uh, been in education for best part of 30 years. So I think that actually offers a a good segue into like, well, could, could you take us back a little bit to where you were before embarking on this sort of coaching this transformative journey what was life like for you just a little bit of background if I take you back I mean I mean I'm I'm 55 years old so that's five and a half decades worth of life but just to kind of the the bullet points (laughs) (laughs) Um, my early childhood I was born in Buckinghamshire Uh, my parents were migrants uh, from Kashmir which is north of India north of Pakistan Um, My father had come in his late teens and then gone back and married my mum and I came along in the late 60s. Um, I lived a life that was kind of our cultural and home life was very much um, 
almost like still being in Kashmir because my parents spoke the language, the food was there, the cultural kind of celebrations were all happening at home. But then I was celebrating everything that was British and a Brit in at heart because I was living in a British culture. Uh, I had British friends. I was in a school. I was speaking English. While at home, I had to speak the local language, which was Punjabi. Um, so I was kind of a cross between two cultures. Um, the reason that's important is because I kind of abided by a lot of the cultural rules. Um, so when it came to getting married, um, the question about marriage started kind of popping up and conversations around that in my late teens um, when I didn't think I was old enough to be considering this. But my father, who was encouraging us to get educated, actually wanted us either engaged or married before we went to university. For some reason, I think there were fears that we'd go away and maybe we won't come back or we might find someone ourselves and that wouldn't be culturally acceptable. It would just be a matter of honour uh, and it, it would be just too much of an insult for them. So I ended up having an arranged marriage. My father chose the person I married. Uh, and having an arranged marriage was that you just met somebody two or three times. You barely knew them. All you knew about them is what other people told you about them. So you're kind of going into um, into one of the most important relationships of your life, but blindfolded, literally. Um, but I was of the attitude that, yes, okay, life's dealt me these cards, but I'll make the most of it. And I kind of saw a little bit of freedom in that as well, because I thought he's an educated person, he's... Uh, he was he, he'd been he'd been traveling even while he was at university. So I thought, wow, I'll be able to do things that I haven't been able to do while I've been in the confines of my my family home, because there were lots of vacant promises or oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. But we never really did the things. There were just promises that might happen someday. But as a child, you kind of hung on to them. Um, one of them being that my father said, when you get a university degree, I'll buy you a round the world ticket. You can go and travel anywhere you want to. Since then, I've I've got a master's degree and I still haven't seen that ticket. And my sister's even got a PhD and she's still waiting for it. <laughs> but we've nevertheless traveled uh, around the world um, ourselves. But it's just um, going back to getting married and confiding, confining to the, the rules, the cultural rules, the family rules, and just keeping everybody happy. What was that? Was was there a lot of inner conflict there? You know, you said you were almost living a double life in some respects. You know, your home life and your outside of home life appear very different. One was essentially like living in Kashmir, and the other one was being in Buckinghamshire in the UK. How was that for you? Very hard because um, I remember being invited when I was doing my A levels, um, being invited to because a lot of people turn 18 while they're in their second year of A levels uh, to their 18th birthday parties. And they're good friends. But I would have to make excuses why I couldn't turn up uh, at the pub or at the uh, at a nightclub. Because now, you know, that's what everybody wanted to do. Because we're 18, we can do this. Um, we can go We can go clubbing. Come on, we've got, we've got to go. Yes, you're coming. I'm saying yes. And at the last minute, I'm making an excuse. That's like a last minute excuse that I can't come because it just simply wasn't acceptable. So was, did, that, did that lead to 
I think you probably did allude to it slightly, but like a, an air of people pleasing, like that you were always feeling like you were having to please not only your parents and the lifestyle that was expected at home, but also that of your friends. Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, and something that I didn't didn't realise that I was doing so much of uh, until probably in the last 10 years. Um, and in fact, I actually, um, when I got married, I think about, Five, six years later, one of my cousins said to me, so you got married uh, uh, in in the year, that year, 88, didn't you? And I said, yes, I did. Yeah. And I said, I said, oh, I said, we'd had a terrible time, you know, the year before my grandfather, my mother's father had passed away. We'd had another uncle pass away and some other tragedy that had happened within the family. And I thought we'd had a miserable time. I thought I'd cheer everybody up. When the question of you're getting married and I said, all right, let's have a wedding then. It'll cheer everybody up. And I actually really felt like that. And it didn't dawn on me until the vows were being exchanged. And I'm like, what the hell have I done? That's incredible. So even something as significant as the life partner, whether it was arranged or not, just that belief that this was in some way to just help other people, to make people feel better as a result of other things going on in the in your life and relationships at the time yes very much so and it was it, it and I remember because you have to say the equivalent of I do yes I accept mm -hmm. I accept I'm saying it and I can hear it loud in my head but the the words were not coming out and then my cousin actually came right close to me and she goes you okay okay I'm on a, she is saying yes but you know we can't hear her so I had to say yes, and I had to kind of nod. So it was like almost like my soul was like trying to stop me from making this commitment that wasn't going to make me happy. But that's now on reflection, you know, when you look back. Yeah, I mean, that would have been terrifying. Uh, yes, very much so. So you'd experience this sort of conflict, this this contrast of lives as you as you were growing up, and then you had an arranged marriage and not knowing this person at all apart from like you say maybe a, a, a few meetings before the the actual the day of the wedding and then you, you you're stood there and there's this realization perhaps of like I, I'm, I'm too far down the road now I can't turn back I mean, what, what, what was that was that was the was the desire to run away or was it more just a shock or was it what what did you feel in that moment I just felt suffocated and felt like I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to embark on this journey. Um, it was like almost jumping into the abyss, into the unknown. And I'm going to be with this person. And I'm being attached to this person for life. That's what what petrified me uh, more than anything else. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised listening to it so it's, an, it's an incredible situation something I, of course I can't, I can't certainly can't relate to directly but I can you know, empathize and try and put myself in that position of what that must have been like and and I can imagine it being a very frightening and like I said very very suffocating and probably a sense of feeling very alone in that moment as well so you've although retrospectively recognized some of the people pleasing behavior that that you carried out during your your youth as you were growing up and then you you meet your husband and you get married how did that behavior then play out in the marriage did it or did you take a different path 
I think I think initially I tried to take a different path and ended up being the same uh, in lots of ways. Um, the you know there's always gifts and opportunities in everything, and there there was gifts and opportunities in the marriage, despite the fact that we didn't we didn't always have much in common right from the beginning. We didn't um, we were very different people, but. I tried very hard to make the marriage work because to me, the consequences were were pretty strong. Not just the fact that I'd be disappointed. I, I actually thought I'd kill my father if I if I got a divorce. If I if my marriage came to an end, that'd be it because my father would be so devastated that he'll just die because he'll just have a heart attack and die. Through shame or? Through shame and just disappointment, uh, I think. Disappointment and just uh, shame disappointment, family honour, all of those things. And I, I think I, I put meaning to, those are the meanings I put to situations when in reality, obviously those things don't happen. My father's still alive and kicking at 91 now. <laughs> and um, so it didn't kill him, uh, you know. Uh, um, yes, he was upset because, you know, my ex-husband, he, he was like a son to him and he was very close to him. Um, but that all happened later on. But in the marriage, just going back to that, um, the opportunity and the gift that I saw was the fact that this man encouraged me to be independent, like as in to do things, to go out and do things, be independent, do things. Even though he didn't want to do things with me, he didn't stop me from doing things, which which meant that even though I'd married him straight after A-levels, I could go and study. I could, I think in some ways, he just wanted me to keep busy doing my thing. He could have his own life and I'd be quite happy like that and maybe not want children. We'll just live parallel lives and just keep everybody happy. Sure. Um, until, you know, a few years later, I, I wanted children, but um the the thing was that that then gave me the opportunity to kind of explore other things. I I I, I trained as a Montessori teacher. Um, uh, I met lots of people. I got to travel with him uh, around the world because that was one thing we did <laughs> together. So was, any it, time... was it a surprise to you? I mean, did you have an expectation of what you thought a husband would be like in in? Was there some was there some picture that had been painted pre marriage as to what marriage looked like to you? So were you expecting the the amount of sort of like I said the, the, essentially the freedom? There's you know I'm, I'm thinking from the concept of an arranged marriage is something where you as an individual lack control because you are not making those choices. Somebody else is making those choices for you, and maybe naively from my perspective, I would imagine in my position, I would imagine that. If I then went into a marriage, then that control would be would continue. It would just hand over to the husband rather than the family or the honour or the father or or whoever it or whatever it was that was dictating that. That's very interesting. You should bring that because the thing is that you, I had an arranged marriage, but so did he. I see. He didn't want to either, nor did I. So we became kind of mutual in rebelling against our parents. <laughs> How fascinating. Because we came to that <laughs> agreement that, well, you didn't want this. I didn't want this. Let's make the most of it because just to annoy them and do things that we want to do. 
Because, you know, once once you're married, and I think that happens in all cultures, not necessarily uh, within the Asian culture, um, you're married 18 months down the line, two years down the line. You haven't had any kids. Are you pregnant? Have you had a checkup? All of that comes into play to the point that um, family members, including my mother and my mother-in-law, um, would say, it's okay. If you want to do other things like work and study, that's fine. Have the baby. We'll look after it. I'm like, oh. have the baby. I'm like, you've done your bit. Thank you very much. You've brought so, up. So, the, so interesting is the, the control still existed in the, the overall family on everything that had come with that. That remained. So there was still control. It just didn't come from the husband. It didn't come from the husband yeah. initially. So did you become? Did you become? I mean, it sounds like you say you were you were you were put together literally, and both, you know, under duress to some extent, even if it maybe wasn't displayed outwardly in some respects. Did you become good friends because of that commonality? Yeah, we did. I, I, we became very good friends. Um, we we connected, and you know, I was with him. I, I got to know him really well, and. I fell in love with him. A few years down the line, I was very much in love with him yeah. to the point that I started loving all his flaws as well because that's what, what happens when you love somebody, you actually don't see any of their flaws. No, this is very true. And I think it, I think that's a really important point to make. I think if, you, if your love is conditional, yeah. then is it really the love that A, you're seeking? Is it really the love that you expect in return? Is it even really love? Is it something else? If it, if it's conditions, and we, I talk about unconditional love on the yeah. podcast on occasion, and it's it's such an important thing to consider that really we we take our partners, like I say, flaws and warts and all that, and that really is true. You know, you don't have to like and love every. I'm sorry, you don't have to like every single individual component of your of your significant other, but you get to love them for that, for being that individual, for being unique, for being different to you, actually. That's one of the things to really celebrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you you alluded to the fact that you are not married anymore. So let's just talk a little bit about how that came to be. Did you say you mentioned, did you you have children in the end? Yes, yes. Eight years into our marriage, uh, we we were blessed with with a daughter. those eight years building up to to getting pregnant, sort of seven years in, uh, I'd suffered from a lot of ill health. Um, I had psoriasis since I was very young, uh, like two and a half, uh, but um, a year, not more, about 18 months into the marriage. So I was still 21. Um, I had a fall, which then led to the start of psoriatic arthritis. Now, apparently only 5% of people with psoriasis get the arthritis. So I I drew the lucky ticket on that one, (laughs) Um, which led to me being pretty slow at doing things, pretty pretty disabled in some ways. I couldn't do much at all. Climbing stairs was a chore. Um, I'd be bandaged up, like I'd have to wear like wrist, supports, um, knee supports. Uh, I'd, I'd wear walking boots everywhere because they had ankle supports. I couldn't wear, definitely couldn't wear high heels. Um, all of those things kind of limited limited me. Uh, and 
my husband was was a darling. He he looked after me, made sure um, when my skin was bad, made sure I was creamed up, uh, because obviously, it's hard enough getting creams on your back um, yeah. at the best of times. But if you're arthritic, you definitely can't reach your back. Um, and with the arthritis, there'd be times where I couldn't turn over. I couldn't pull the duvet over me and he would support me. And at times when I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be so stiff that I could barely get out of bed, he'd help me and run a hot bath for me for just the point where it was bearable for me to get into the bath, which he assisted with me every step of the way and sit there for a good half an hour to kind of loosen up so I could function for the day. It sounds like you formed a really good bond over over and above. Over, over, uh, yes. Certainly the expectations heading into the relationship anyway. Yeah. So, but things started going sour, I'd say, because um, we were married for 23 years. So kind of like probably about 18, 16 to 18 years into the marriage where he started kind of throwing his weight about a bit. At this point, he was at the top of his career. Bearing in mind, I married him literally when he finished, he's in the medical profession, so he'd literally finished his degree and done his first six months or a year, no, first year, uh, which is still part of their training. Yeah. Uh, and we got married. So I saw him through all his career, uh, which led to me moving around the country um, as well as traveling around the world, which which is fab because I got to live in different parts of the UK. So I kind of um, find that as a privilege. Again, I look at the opportunities and the gifts because um, I have friends all over and, and I can go and stay with people all over, which is really nice. Um, but what what changed in him was that I was the person who would always, and that's what you're supposed to do as a partner. You When when one of them, one of you starts flying high as a kite, the other one pulls the other one down and keeps them grounded. Sure. Uh, and I think I used to do that a lot to him. Um, which he did the same to me. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that wasn't the case. But I think a man, you're a man, so you'd know, you guys, as men, you need somebody who kind of always blows your trumpet a bit more, uh, who's always there kind of acknowledging, I think, is more important rather than saying that or uh, noticing those things. When I'd stopped noticing those things about him, uh, well, I did notice them and I'd not not compliment him, but maybe I didn't compliment him as often as he would have liked. Yeah, we'll just add in there just from a personal perspective, because I think I, I can definitely recognize that. I can certainly recognize it in my younger self, particularly like almost an expectation that that my partner or the most important people in my life should notice the things that I'm doing to some extent. And I've, I've already been quite, I've always been quite self-motivated. So I, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of doing things myself and just patting myself on the back. You know, I, I've, I've always had that, but of course it is nice to come from the people that you care about the most. It has shifted for me over the years. Maybe there's, maybe it's semantics, but like the, when you said noticed, that's all I feel that I would like. And, and I'm not dependent on it, but I like I like it if my partner notices something that doesn't have to be a, Hey, well done. That's amazing. Or any, any of that. I don't need any of that, but just the, yeah, just that awareness rather than it, you know, to feel like there's some communication, there's some two way link 
uh, and which I think is really important. Well, the fact that somebody's noticing what you're doing, I, I don't think I, I did any less of it, but sometimes, you know, it wasn't a two-way thing. I, I would never get acknowledged, but I never needed it. To me, it was always just satisfying just talking about what I was doing um, because I just talk about it and I'll be su on such a high. Um, uh, I'd feel great about it because I, I'm, I've shared it. And, and I was the kind of person who'd share everything with him, even to the point when... Um, other girlfriends would tell me about their husbands having had affairs or the fact that they were having an affair for 10 years and they were oblivious to it. And I'd say to him, oh, aren't I so glad I've got you and give him a big hug and say, you would never do that to me, would you? And he'd just smile and leave it at that. But all of these people that I talk about would always accept the infidelity and carry on with the guys or oh, for the sake of the children or it's much easier, you know, I can't do this. And I think he knew deep down that I would, would never leave or would never want to separate regardless because it, again, culturally, he'd never experienced that. Course, so, so what was the pivotal moment for you? What was what was the thing that 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 changed that? Because you're obviously not married anymore. So I'm not married anymore. And the pivotal his his, his belief around you not leaving was wrong. Ultimately, was wrong because to me uh, the ultimate betrayal was that you. Well, it all started with him just saying to me one evening, we're sitting at the dining table after dinner. Um, I'm having a uh, I think a mint tea that I can smell the mint still and I can see the garden at twilight and he's sitting there with a coffee um, and he just looked at me and said Yasmin you're an amazing person and I care deeply for you and I'm very very fond of you but I don't love you now Yasmin's never been short of words to say but that was a moment in my life that just left me dumbfounded and struck in a way that I couldn't say anything I, I just it's like a huge frog in my throat where I just couldn't utter anything and I just welled up and just started crying because here I was 22 years of dedication to this man loving him to bits and he's now telling me he doesn't love me he thinks he's fond of me and well I can name a whole load of people who are fond of me people are fond of me even if they sit next to me on on an airplane and I've had a long chat with them and we've exchanged numbers and they stay in touch that means they're fond and they like me is that all I get from you after 22 years but Yasmin being yeah but Yasmin being Yasmin once I realized what was going on, still tried to fix it. Tried to, tried a good six months to try and fix the marriage. In what way? <laughs> try and cook his favorite meals, make mealtime special, um, find out when he was free, um, make sure that we, we went out for a walk together. Um, we were quite blessed we lived at the edge of the peak 
district so we could go into the peak district but just making that time uh, to spend time with him even in the evenings make sure that when he's not working say all right we're going to watch tv together uh, and just have that time with him and not just the three of us because by this time our daughter's a teenager yeah um and spending that time uh getting him special birthday presents not that i didn't get him birthday presents but really thinking about them and getting him something special that will really surprise him um I did all of that, but by that stage, it was too late because these things should be done every year, not just after a number of years. You know, you should make your partner feel special. You, you should. Um, and in return, they should make you feel special. But I hadn't got that either because for years I hadn't got a birthday present because it's ah, it's just a waste of time. It's an interesting point because there's 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 conflict in in the approach when it comes to relationships and and what we should or shouldn't do for our partners and how much we should give and how much we shouldn't give and and for me it comes down to what we expect on the other side of that giving if that giving whatever that looks like is conditional mm. it requires something specifically in return then it's not genuine it's not clean no. and we're acting from a place of inauthenticity mm -hmm. we're not being true to ourselves because we're actually trying to get the other person to do something to make us feel better and now, it all... of course it's tough because in those in moments like that you know you it was a shock it was you know the true rug from underneath your feet it's like a complete blind side mm -hmm. and it's only natural for us to want to try and do anything that we possibly can to to fix it and yeah it's interesting because i think in those situations often it's easy to then try and blame yourself for not being good enough for looking back well i didn't do it for all these years beforehand or i i'd, I'd eased off i'd i'd this that and the other or i'm somehow judging what i'm doing based on what he's doing and it's like well again it's it's a it's a, it's complex. I'm not saying it's a simple thing, but it's it's just it can be quite sad to see that play out sometimes. Yes, and and it, it it's it's clutching at straws. Yeah, because you um, clutch at straws and you blame yourself. You actually you're not objective because if you're if you feel you haven't been doing it, they haven't either. Exactly. So you when you were first married, even though the love wasn't there. You'd always get flowers regularly, uh, a treat on Valentine's Day, whether you went out for a meal, whether you got that single red rose, that the effort was made. But then for years, oh, it's all commercial, you know, we're not going to bother with this. Um, but funnily enough, that year he did get me something for Valentine's Day. It was very interesting because that's when he was having the affair and he got me a cactus a cactus for valentine's day and i'm like whoa it was heart-shaped there's definitely some symbolism going on in there somewhere <laughs> but it was a cactus and and the fact that he alluded to who he was having an affair with and i didn't click because he said oh somebody at work said that these these are all the rage and everybody's giving these at valentine's day 
Well, yeah, he gave me a cactus, but he sent her roses, which I found out, you know, um, a few weeks later. But the point is that I'd never, ever received flowers from him in the post or like people would, you know, I was working in a school, all, all my colleagues or quite a few of my colleagues would get their partners would send their 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 flowers to work and it'd be like oh oh he's making such a fuss and everybody feel really good never got anything like that so we've got to this point where you you know your husband has told you that he doesn't love you anymore this has come as a complete and utter shock you have done everything you can for the next six months to to try and resolve that and presumably that was unsuccessful in at least from your objective what, what what happens next well it all kind of the the crux of it and the the make or break of it happened when I'd done all of that and I was trying to initiate a meeting so we can kind of plan out the next year and the next five years of what we want to do and the reply I got was I haven't got time to do this um it's all your fault that uh, everything's not the way it should be you're to blame you fix it i see did you believe that as well i didn't actually believe that because that's when it dawned on me that i could be anybody you know i could change my the way i looked i could dress differently i could be differently or do the different things but he doesn't like me as a person it sounds like you've. It, it's interesting listening to sort of the various stages throughout your life that you, you you mentioned earlier. How when something that doesn't necessarily go your way or it doesn't come the way you expected, you're able to take it still as an opportunity and do something different with it. So of course you're faced with this life changing, you know, revelation in in many ways, both in terms of the the loss of love, but also the discovery of an affair and. You know, for lots of people who I, I know, because I've worked with some of these people who who really take a very, very downward dive, and it can be years, decades even before they're able to sort of, you know, work through it. And sometimes they don't at all. You know, it's it's a case of there's, there's there's a lot of work to be done, and if it's not really intentional and trying to sort of reframe the situation, it's like, well, how what can I learn from this? How can I move forward from this? So, with that in mind you've you've got this slightly alternative mindset what steps did you take what did you do next well I can't kind of planned out my exit so to speak um I we had a conversation we actually had more conversations once we decided we were getting divorced um uh, the wall comes down yes and and we've accepted it and We've decided we're getting divorced um, only after I'd had my last lot of IVF. I mean, I'd had four lots of IVF um, um, at, by that stage. Um, and funnily enough, my 15-year-old, at the time my daughter was 15, and I said, I'm trying for another baby. And she said, do you think that's going to fix your marriage? And I'm like, oh, you're wiser than your age you know you're way ahead of me now looking back she could see things that I couldn't but quite often when you're in it you can't see it oh no absolutely absolutely and and I think this is one of the reasons why although it's so tempting to beat ourselves up about the things that we didn't see the things that we didn't miss the reality is we couldn't have done it's kind of impossible 
because you the way that our brains filter out all of the bits of information that that don't support our belief i.e i love my husband he loves me we're happily married whatever that looks like anything that doesn't align with that we ignore it's a bit like seeing some polarizing political view on on social media and you turn it off because your brain doesn't want to acknowledge that somebody else thinks something very different to you. So it just deletes it. And of course, this happens in our household. It happens in our day-to-day lives with the subtlest of things. And yeah, it's interesting that when you have that sort of removed subjectivity and your more, more objective view of, in this case, your, your 15-year-old daughter, being able to see things without that direct emotional blinker system. And it's um, it's very interesting because you you're always thinking the best, and the way the way our brain works, and this is something while I've you know learned through coaching and uh, studying coaching, uh, is the fact that it's a survival method to kind of stay on in the same area and the same place where we are and not come out of our comfort zone. It's a survival mechanism. It's it's our body trying to protect us. Because if we were in prehistoric times and we wanted to venture out and there's a chance that we might get attacked by a, a saber-toothed tiger or, or a woolly mammoth might turn up, start chasing us, then we might as well stay in the cave. And we all end up staying in the cave uh, in lots of ways. And that's what I was doing. So me fixing stuff, doing things um, to kind of, I was clasping at straws to try and keep what I had. And, 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 I, and I'd had, and here I was, you know, um, in my 40s, um, early 40s, that's all I'd known. And I'd known my parents' home and I'd known my husband's family and home. And I'd kind of spent 20 years there, 23 years there. So equal time, equal times in both places. And that's all I knew. So, uh, so everything else was unknown. And it was like an open like a desert in front of me that I wouldn't, how am I going to find my way through this? So how did you get from where you were then to where you are now? What were some of the the steps that were taken? The crucial steps that I took were um, initially, obviously I got, got a lot of advice from friends, um, which has its good and bad points. Sometimes we talk to people and, it feels good at the time, but some it, it, it's never helpful because they're not trained people and they're not trained to give you therapy or give you any support of any kind. They're just siding with you or siding with the with my husband or and and that's all you're getting. And you might you just get in a way sometimes just getting it out of your system gives you a little feel good factor, but there's no progress. There's a lot, of, valid- just- there's a lot of validation. Yes, and yes. There's, and, there's, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, this is how you should do it. Yeah. Or yeah. This is how you, this, uh, oh, yeah, you were right. You're right. You've got to get, get this. You've got to do this. And sadly, that then kind of keeps you pumped up for a bit. But you, you end up wallowing in the self-pity and uh, in the sadness and the grief of it. Because you've got to go through all those stages. Oh, 100%. Um, and I, um, and we don't want, we don't want to, though. No, we don't want to. We definitely to. don't want to. And when you're in it, it's like it doesn't matter how, you know, you have somebody 
you you learn this stuff you see the messages you have someone say it and and you don't want to you'd rather be with your friends being validated and supported and, and all the things and i think there really is space for that in everybody's healing journey but like anything if you stay in the same place all the time you don't move forward so there really it's a combination of these things that really help us progress and recognizing that that some things do just keep us stuck and that can be one of them so so with with the validation of friends and all of that i did stay in that for like almost two years which ended up me getting into another relationship um which only lasted eight weeks by the way and i had to i had to run for my life uh because i i married somebody who was who i consider a psychopath who was literally cutting me off from all the contacts i had and isolating me and then wanting me to spend all the money. And I thought, I was in London. I thought, I'm going to end up at the bottom of the Thames and nobody will know where I am. I need you, to get You were married for eight weeks. Yeah, married yeah. for eight weeks. Because I couldn't live with someone. You know, I come from a Muslim background and it just wouldn't be the done thing to be in a relationship and live with someone. You had to be married to them. Sure. So, so I... I, I taken the plunge got married um I could have just got away with just having the religious marriage but no I had the religious marriage and the court marriage uh, at the registry office um at the same time and then eight weeks later I had to plan an exit and that is where I hit rock bottom I ended up in a women's refuge in the south of the country um all on my own and just feeling really, really down and didn't know which direction to go. And that's when I had therapy. For about four months, I had therapy and I did a course um, which was focused on domestic abuse and women who have come out of domestic abuse, which I didn't know such things existed. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know what kind of abuse could exist. I only saw abuse as being beaten up and left black and blue or yeah. killed. That's all I saw, the physical abuse. But I didn't see the emotional abuse. I didn't see the financial abuse. I didn't see any of that. I didn't I didn't even know about it. I didn't know the terminologies. I I didn't know that somebody could have um narcissistic personality and how they behave around you none of this and that was a huge education for me uh for the 12 weeks that I did that course um and it awakened me in lots of ways but the therapy helped me to talk through things and just have somebody listening um when it wasn't my friends or family members who would then give me advice this person just listened and it helped me process some of my things but immediately after that, I came across a coach who had been through um, a really painful divorce. Um, and I signed up with her for a six month period um, to get her support. And that really helped me because therapy helped me to process what has happened in the past. But the coaching helped me yes, this has happened, but how am I going to move forward? And and everything has its value. The therapy had its value in its place and the coaching's had its value in its place. But I find that 
if we stay in uh, in in therapy and we just stay there, we'll just that to me is just staying uh, and wallowing in. It's just it's just another place that you can stay. A bit yes. like a bit like the time with your friends. It's like yes. it's recognizing that there's going to be a different part of your your journey is an ongoing up and down non-linear thing and there are going to be different components at different points of the timeline and of course as you evolve and grow and learn and implement and better understand yourself then each individual bit is going to have more impact at a different part in the journey and I think just recognizing that that there is no there is no one magic pill that solves everything is a combination of just adjusting and evolving as, it's interesting as the because things things happen and you, you move on from one thing to another and uh, for me it was it's now sitting today in 2023 looking back over the last 15 20 30 years you know it's like that famous quote that Steve Jobs says that uh, you can't connect the dots looking forward uh you can only connect them looking looking backwards and now when i look back i see oh yes Uh, that therapy that was useful because that led me to this and that led me to this because then once I'd had had the coaching for six months um, through that coaching I realized that I was capable of way more than I thought I was Uh, and even though uh, I'd been a teacher for for a number of years and at that point I I was still teaching but I, I could I could venture and travel and teach so I moved abroad. Um, I went to become a governess. I became Mary Poppins and went and traveled the world. Uh, and I literally did because the kind of people I worked with, I had the opportunities of living in different places and, and traveling. And the first place I went to was Saudi Arabia. So I was in the middle of the desert, uh, literally. And that gave me so much reflective time to really find myself. Because detaching myself from my life, from my family, from parents, um, I would be working a set amount of hours, but then then my time was my own. I started reading, I started studying, I, I watched films that I, I'd never watched. And all of that was all education, um, you know, and different times, you know, where different people come along. And I discovered Wayne Dyer. Now, I'd, I'd heard little bits about him, but that's when I really discovered him while I was in the desert. And it's, again, there's there's another quote by, I think it's Lao, Lao Tzu, something like, when when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Yes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure where it comes from, but I have heard the... I, have I, th- heard I think the it's Lao Tzu, who, who was a um, um, Chinese philosopher. Um, and... That's what happened, and then that got me on a on a journey of of discovery, uh, which led to um, learning more about coaching and just kind of learning, growing more spiritually and mentally in that area. And at the very beginning, you mentioned you mentioned three things. You mentioned obviously you're a coach and that you help people through a combination of nutrition positive intelligence and um, self-care. I think they were the three things that you mentioned. So just sort of one by one, would you be able to talk a little bit to yes, each yeah. of those and how, um, they how they've happened? I mean, as a woman in my 50s now um, um, and going through the menopause, 
I had significantly, well, and going through my divorce and everything else, um, life in general, I had piled on the pounds um, significantly. And every time I tried to get rid of them, because, you know, the convention is that go and exercise, you need to hit the gym, uh, go out for a run. Um, I actually piled on more because what I was doing was inadvertently actually creating more stress in my body because I had all these health conditions that would counteract that. I mean, somebody who's perfectly healthy and has exercised all their lives, then they can go and still hit the gym and um, be maintaining their weight or reducing their weight. But a lot of funny stuff happens in your body with hormones as well during the menopause that kind of counteracts all of that. And one of the key things is that we're not nutritionally satisfied all the time because we live in a world where we eat a lot of processed foods and even the foods that we think are wholesome and are full of nutrients lack in those nutrients because our soil quality is now so down compared to what it was a thousand years ago. So I was struggling and in 2020 when COVID hit, I was really struggling and really petrified because at that point I was living and working in Dubai. Um, Everything stopped. And the key thing that we were being told was that anybody who has an autoimmune condition is going to die. And I was desperate to find something that I could do to build up my immunity so I didn't get COVID because I knew I already had an autoimmune condition because psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis come under that uh, umbrella. And one of the things being of the mindset that I was, um, I classified... Um, covid as an opportunity so i can learn things so i start i took up two languages that i was doing on an app and uh i was like listening into seminars and learning things um because you just had that much free time that oh yes well might as well utilize this so i started doing online courses and i discovered a seminar where um they were talking about nutrition and how with through nutrition cuz what the point was by this chap was the fact that we are nutritionally um we're overfed and undernourished basically that's the term he used yeah. uh we eat a lot but we don't get the nourishment and i'm like oh what do you mean and he says well our food is lacking in nutrients we need to optimize our nutrition and exercise is good but if we're not optimally nourished then the exercise is counterproductive. So true. We need to be nourished first. And I'm like, oh, okay, tell me about it. So he went through all how, how it worked and what it was. And um, and that it was a side effect that you'll shed a few pounds. And I'm like, oh, so you're optimizing your nutrition. You're making yourself feel healthy. You're actually bringing out, um, optimizing your health. And the emphasis isn't on the exercise because more often than not, any kind of diet program I'd done in the past or anything I'd done, it was always what everything went hand in hand. You do this and then you do this, then you do this. Um, there is an oversimplification of eat less, move more. And although there's some truth to that, of course, there's it's not always as simple as that. No. So, so, and so I'm like, okay, I'm on board. And I changed my life in three months with that wow. program 
Um, with that program, in three months, the, the photos I took in at the beginning of September and then at Christmas, I looked totally different. And people who hadn't seen me since the summer and then saw me at Christmas were like, what the hell happened to you? And I'm like, well, everybody put, was putting on the COVID pounds. I just shed them. I don't go with convention. <laughs> Amazing. Well done to you. So, so that was what brought me into into um, sharing that with uh, with clients uh, uh, to take that journey. But you see, what I've learned is uh, in my years of study is that when you get your health and fitness in line, then everything else starts to fall in place. So these are kind of the crux. So this is like the foundation. So when you get your your nut optimized nutrition. Um, and, and your fitness back, because by the end of that program, you know, because it's, it's, it's over three months, you want to move. Yeah. Your body naturally wants to move and you're encouraged then to More move energy, go and exercise. Yeah. And, but you're, you're, you're actually increasing your metabolism and, and you're shedding the pounds because you're, you're optimizing nutrition. Um, so that then um, led me to work in PQ because that was the foundation um, was the, the health program, which has a knock-on effect, actually, because it's classified as a nutrition program, but it's, it's actually a transformational program, which then pours over into the rest of your life as well, because the way things are done in that and how it's built up over the 13 weeks, anybody can apply those principles in other aspects of their life and actually have similar results. So that's where I'm coaching. Uh, and the positive intelligence actually really uh, nicely fits in with that as a um, as a program because there's aspects of uh, the positive intelligence um, what is positive psychology intelligence? behavioral psychology that that happened within the nutrition program the positive intelligence is um, a program about um, how we can actually improve our outlook and be more in flow uh, right. So when when we're when when we, we can be either in flow or we can be um, not in flow. And when we're not in flow, I'm we very got... familiar. I'm very familiar with not in flow. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Uh, when we're not in flow, we have lots of things going on in our head. So we have all these voices going on in our head and they're pulling us this way and that way. And when we're in flow, we're just there and we're we're getting things done. And you must have experienced it, Luke, when there's times where you feel like you've been doing something because the amount of work you've got done, you feel like you spent like six hours doing it and you've actually achieved it in less than an hour. It's, it's an incredible feeling and it is definitely something I experience on a pretty regular basis, if I'm honest. And I think in some respects, it's because I am so aware it exists mm -hmm. and I, I, I have yet to found the, the key set of steps to reliably maintain it or to like get it when I want it rather than just, oh, I'm in it, you know, right, go, 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 go. Because you know? it always seems to be right at the times when I don't really either have the time or I've got something else I should be doing or, you know, I've got a deadline. In fact, deadlines often play a part in it. Yeah, deadlines do help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does but play a part. The, the, what the program does is it gives you an app and it helps you to strengthen the, the muscle, the PQ yeah. muscle. 
So when you strengthen the PQ muscle, you're more you're going to be more in what they term a sage, which is being in flow. So the more you do that, the more the stronger it gets. So that so the voices start to die down and you're more in flow. Um, that's kind of a, a synopsis of it. And, and it's a very short program. It's a six week program. Uh, and then people have got the app uh, for a lot longer to carry on using uh, and applying those practices. I found so it. So, do you guide people through that, or yes. is this? Yeah, yeah. So the app is there to to prompt people on a daily basis to do the exercises while they're building up the muscle, and then they've got the option sort of carrying on, continue the uh, the work afterwards. Amazing. That sounds really good. I think, and that, and I think, I mean, I added self care as the third thing, but by the sounds of it, but that having the the nutrition in place which is fueling your body properly fueling your brain properly so that you can then actually be much more intentional about everything that you do to build that positive intelligence to get you into that flow state so that you can be more creative and productive and ultimately achieve more things in the world whatever that looks like either on a personal professional or any level that you you consider That'd be really See, when you when you optimize uh, you optimize your nutrition it's it's not the fact that you know yeah, a lot of people worry about the weight but it's not just the weight you get all sorts of other benefits like clarity yeah. of mind you get so many ideas popping up in your head you sleep so much better your productivity goes through the roof that's what happened and the self-care I mean I, I've kind of developed lots of self-care routines um, of how to look after myself and how to maintain myself yes you do the do the the three-month program uh, with me but then how do we maintain that lifestyle because you somebody holds your hand for three months, but you need it a little bit longer to kind of ingrain all those habits and ingrain the strength and to have somebody there to kind of fall back on, you know, oh, I've had a bad day. No, we have a bad day and we think that's it. It's the end of the world. Like, oh, well, that's it. Oh, I've had enough now. I've failed. But we we haven't failed. So we've just gone off course a bit. We just got to read the map and come back on course again, and and that's where I help people do that. Um, yeah. So. So how do people find you? Where, where are all the things? Where are all the things? I, I will give you all those details to put in the bio for sure. But sure. Uh, I'm I'm known as Wellbeing with Yasmin, uh, and um, what I offer is um, a discovery call. So come and chat to me, so I can do like a bespoke program for you because we are all unique. Uh, we are all on our own journeys and we all want to be heard and we all want to solve our own problems. So, you know, just like all the fingers aren't the same, nor are all the individuals in the world. Have a chat with me and see how I can help you. Well, thank you ever so much for your time today, Yasmin. It's been an absolute pleasure. And look after yourself. You. And I hope you have a great rest of your year. Thank you. And there we have it. So I think to summarise having witnessed Yasmin's journey through her differing cultures, her battle with an abusive marriage and her inspiring transformation really serves as a reminder that even in the darkest times there is always a glimmer of hope. We've learned the importance of unconditional love, accepting our partner's flaws and celebrating their uniqueness. Yasmin's unwavering determination to learn from her experiences and rebuild her life is truly commendable. As I close this episode, 
I'm left, and hopefully you are, with a profound sense of admiration for the strength and valuable insights that have been shared. It's a reminder to us all that setbacks can be, in fact, opportunities for growth, and that intentional work and reframing our situations can lead to a much brighter future. It's perfectly normal to feel lost after betrayal. It can feel like we're in quicksand and there's nothing to grip a hold of. Something as simple as understanding your trust and the type of trust that you have in your relationship could be a powerful anchor and starting point to help you rebuild trust within your relationship. You can do this right now by going to lifecoachluke.com forward slash trust and take the trust score after betrayal quiz. By doing it, you will gain a deeper understanding of the trust within your relationship, identify potential areas for improvement, and receive a tailored report. It takes less than three minutes, and you will receive detailed feedback and actionable steps of how to move forward. So that's lifecoachluke.com forward slash trust. Join me next time on the After the Affair podcast as I continue to explore stories of love, loss and resilience. And remember, there is always hope after the affair. I'll speak to you all next week.